All right, we'll have you remain standing as we read the passage for today, which can be found in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 18, through uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. Uh, hear the word of the Lord. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of the God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I desire then that in every place that men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable, respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right, let's pray uh, before we dive into the scriptures here. Uh, Heavenly Father, Thank you for your word um, from Paul to Timothy here in 1 Timothy. Uh, please be with me as I speak and preach these words that I would preach the truth of your word, um, that the spirit would convict and encourage um, all of us. We pray that uh, we would be able to go forth knowing more of your word, knowing more of the truth of um, Christ Jesus, and that we may live godly and dignified lives. In the name of Christ we pray, amen. All right, so quick review of 1 Timothy. Remember, we have Paul writing to Timothy, an older mentor in the faith, writing to a young, younger man who is being trained up for leadership in the faith. Right, this is the purpose of the letter. This is slightly different than some of the other epistles where Paul is writing to churches with a sense of authority, maybe um, correcting some wrongs, etc. Here we have more of a older to younger relationship, a father to a son, imparting godly wisdom so that he may be able to train the next generation, that he, or that he is training the next generation so that the next generation may be able to lead others in a godly life, may be able to encourage the churches and also work against any heresies that may be popping up. And we saw that right away. We saw that with uh, Pastor Daniel Ralph teaching on why does Timothy need to remain where he is, right? To combat the false teachings. And what were some of those false teachings? Well, diving into endless genealogies, mythologies, and primarily wrong usage of the law. Remember Daniel, uh, Pastor Daniel talked about how there are those wrongly using the law, that is using it for the just and not for exposing sin. And it kind of made the, um, comment last week about how Paul was probably very familiar with that because, remember, he was a master in the law. He knew the law very well, and he used it wrong before uh, his uh, Damascus Road experience where Christ called and turned him to Christ himself. And then last week, I really emphasized um, the heart of God, right? What is the heart of God that Paul missed throughout all of the Old Testament scriptures. It is that God is rich in mercy and he desires for people to turn to him and be saved. 
That's why this morning for the Old Testament passage, I gave one verse. I thought about giving the 30 verses before where there's this giant exposition of, you know, the righteous shall live by if they will be righteous if they do righteous by faith. And, but if the wicked, if they were to turn and do righteousness, then their sins would be forgiven. But if the righteous, if they were to continue in wickedness, they would receive judgment. And we have this long list of all these uh, different scenarios in Ezekiel. And it's about 30 to 35 verses. But it's summed up so perfectly in Ezekiel 18.32. God desires no, he does not take pleasure in the death of any man. And so his command is to repent and live. Those two things are necessarily tied together. By repenting and having faith in Christ, we then actually live. Until then, we were dead. As Paul says elsewhere, we are dead in our trespasses. People are dead before they repent. And we see that in Ezekiel as well with the dry bones. You know, I learned in seminary, uh, I'm learning in seminary that the answers to every theological question, generally, the joke is it's either you go to Isaiah or Ezekiel. And it kind of is true, right? Isaiah and Ezekiel have all the necessary information, although they are generally very tough books to uh, read and they're very lengthy in nature. But we see that in the Old Testament, God's commands were the same as when Christ came. Christ is the fulfillment of all that was written. He, doesn't, can't, he didn't come to change anything except the mediation by which people are forgiven. Right? Christ came to be the sacrifice for sin that the bulls and the rams could not pertain. But from the beginning and from the start, it was always... Israel needed a circumcised heart. They needed a new heart, and so too it is with us. And so too we saw with Paul encouraging and admonishing Timothy last week, saying, look, Timothy, I was the foremost sinner. You don't get it. I wanted to kill God. I wanted Christ to die. Remember I mentioned Paul was a similar age of Christ, and so he was definitely very familiar with the teachings and he sought to kill all the Christians. And what was the purpose of Paul's conversion? It was so that others may know the richness and the depths of God's mercy, that he would be an example to all of how much God can forgive a sinner. And so you know, we admonished last week with that should be our attitude towards the darkened and sinful world. Right? The, the darkened world, we should not expect to do not dark things. A blind person naturally cannot guide themselves, as Jesus says. So, too, a morally blind world will continue to think they're doing good, but will only continue to do evil. And so, as Christians, we are to call to them to repentance, call to them to live. And that's where, we leave, that's where we left off last week, and we begin today. And today is really about the application of such theology, the manifestation of godliness in our lives. How does this pertain to us? What are we to do as a church? Paul wants to tell Timothy very specifically certain things that he needs to do in order to live a godly life in accordance with this great mercy and this great forgiveness that he was given through Christ, and he is to give and call others to as well. But it's important for us to remember that what is being spoken here applies to the church. I touched on this last week. We have two different kingdoms, darkened kingdom and kingdom of God. The church is fundamentally different than the world. And so we can get confused when we start to mix commands given to the church as if it is given to the world and vice versa. We saw that last week with 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul even tells the Corinthian church they had this wrong. When he told them not to associate with the sexually immoral, he specifically said, I don't mean the sexually immoral of the world, for if you were to do that, you would physically have to leave planet Earth. Right, you would have to get on a rocket ship and leave because the world is full of darkened people. And so if you were to try to not associate with any sin ever, any sinful person ever in your whole life, you would have to leave the world. 
Like the world is dark. And so, but what he admonishes them is to not associate with the sexually immoral among you, one that would call themselves brother. So we see that there's two different commandments given, one to the church, or expectations, not commandments, expectations, one for the church, how you act towards the church, and one how you act towards the world. And the primary um, motive we should have for the world is a, a desire for them to repent and come to Christ. And so that's where we start today. And actually, verses 18 through 20 serve as a very good example of how to deal in the church with someone who's unwilling to hold some of the mysteries of the faith with a good conscience. We see here that Paul says, some people have made shipwreck of their faith by what? Well, by this. Well, what is this? Uh, that by them, well, Paul's telling Timothy, but by them you may wage the good warfare holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting these things, some people have made shipwreck of their faith. So what did Paul do? Paul handed Hymenaeus and Alexander over to Satan. What does that mean? Well, in very practical terms, it means he kicked them out of the church, excommunication. They're no longer a part of the body of Christ. But what I want us to see here, uh, well, first of all, what was their sin? Their sin was blaspheming. And we'll see later in this passage that, you know, there's some hints as to what was the nature of their blasphemy. It was probably one of two things which was very common in the early church. It was either rejecting the full divinity of Christ or rejecting the full humanity of Christ. I'm going to point out later there's an emphasis here that's pretty unique to the book to Paul's writings where he says there's one mediator between men and God, the man, Jesus Christ. Chances are they may have been rejecting the fact that Christ was fully man, tempted in every way that we are. And so the temptation there is to minimize Christ's human nature. The temptation on the other side is to minimize Christ's divine nature. Holding these things in tandem requires faith and a good conscience, holding it with a good conscience. So what did he do? He gave them over to the world so that, so that they may learn not to blaspheme. I hope what we see here is at the core of Paul's desire of handing them over to Satan is that they would learn to not sin, that they would learn the error of their way, that they would repent and come back to him. Right? What, what's happening is he wants them to realize the consequence of their sin. And those of you who have children, some, you kind of see this with raising kids. Right? Kids will start to do something, and you're like, you know, I'll tell Kai, like, please don't do that. And then he keeps doing it. And I'm like, please don't do that. That's not good. Here's why. And then he keeps doing it. And then sometimes you let it just happen. They might fall and hurt themselves. They might continue to punch the other kid. I don't know why, because they're angry. And then the other kid responds back, and they're bigger, and they hurt, you know, they, they respond back with more force. Or if you have siblings, you kind of see it. I was a younger sibling, so I uh, instigated against my brother a lot. I would instigate, 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 and then he would come and jump on me and punch me. Not saying it was a right judgment, but there's a, there's a sense that uh, you receive the due consequence to what you're doing. And in that, you are learning that it's not right. Right? I learned that I shouldn't poke a bear because I saw videos of people poking a bear and the bear attacking. Right? You don't want to physically actually experience that because you may not come out alive. But the point being is that sometimes we are handed over to our desires or to the wrongdoing so that we may learn the consequence and repent and come back. That is the heart of Paul here with Hymenaeus and Alexander. It isn't to just get them away. Right? He wants... Paul wants to protect the flock, but he also wants them to turn and come back. He wants them to see the error of their way so that they may learn not to blaspheme. And that same motive carries throughout the entire passage in chapter 2 of 1 Timothy. So the next section, uh, I'm going to block off as two, uh, chapter 2, verse 1 to verse 7, starts with this exact desire. Paul starts chapter 2, verse 1, first of all. So you want to know what the first thing we should do after understanding this divine grace 
in acting out in a godly manner, first of all, make supplication, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings. So a lot of interceding and praying for, for who? For your brothers and sisters in Christ? For your family? No, for all people. All people. And he gives us an example of what he means. He says specifically, kings and rulers. Now, some of us may think, oh, well, wasn't there like a peaceful time in Rome? You know, maybe Paul was writing during that time, so the king was doing good. Uh, Newsflash, no. First Timothy was written somewhere between 60 and 65 AD. And many of you may have heard of an emperor called Nero. He reigned from, well, it's a little argued about when exactly he took the throne because it was kind of contentious, but somewhere in the early 50s to about 65 AD. And he was known for blaming the Christians for a fire that he started. And what happened after that? Well, Christians were dragged out of their home, thrown into the Colosseum, mauled by tigers, stoned to death in front of lots of people because it was very common in the pagan culture and the pagan government that when bad things happened to your city, a god was executing judgment. And so, like we saw with the story of Jonah, people thought, oh, this storm is coming upon us. There must be someone disobeying a god amongst us. So, too, they believed the same in their, their civilization, in their pagan religion. So, Paul is writing during a time where persecution is at a height. Actually, afterwards, it declines some. It is at a height. And what does he say? He urges the people, first of all, the Christians, to pray for all people, kings and rulers, pagan kings and rulers, who do evil things. And I think this is very, very fitting for our um, situation here in Minnesota, especially with the bills that are being passed um, with abortion. Right On Friday, uh, I learned or actually early into Saturday morning, 3 a.m. or something, that the Senate passed a bill allowing abortion up to the moment of birth. So killing a child up until they're born, even if they could survive outside the womb. Now my question is, how do we view these people who pass that law? How do we view them? Do we desire for them to come to a knowledge of Christ? Or do we desire for them to just rot away in their sin and we need to be rid of them in society. They're a stain on society in some, in some way, shape, or form. Right? They're executing ungodly laws. They are perpetuating evil in our society. And as Christians, we are called to be distinctly different than these people. And on top of that, we are to speak about their natural authority in a certain way as well. Now, you might be wondering, where, do I, where exactly do I get that? Well, the next verses, living a quiet, and godly life dignified in every way. What does it mean to do that? Well, I want to give you an example, an example from the Old Testament and a name, uh, a specific man by the name of Belteshazzar. I find it ironic. We always remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego by their Babylonian names, but we always call Daniel by his Hebrew name. Daniel was named Belteshazzar and his three comrades, Azariah, Mishael, and uh, Hananiah, uh, they were taken away from their homeland. They were taken by a pagan king and forced to learn pagan teachings. They were forced into this lifestyle. And they were forced to serve a king who clearly hated God. In fact, he hated God so much that he made an image to himself and commanded everyone to bow down and worship it. And when they didn't bow down and worship it, he sought to kill them. So where, am I, where exactly am I going with this? Well, let's take a step back and walk through the story of Daniel, and hopefully you'll see what a quiet and godly life would look like in light of a pagan and an evil king. Daniel, when he's approached by an angel in Daniel 2, he says this. He said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and establishes kings. First and foremost, he recognizes the sovereignty of God in establishing 
and like the fact that he is under an evil king. But he also recognizes the fact that it is God who can remove or change the heart of this king, which we will actually see in the story of Daniel later. Because in Daniel chapter 2, what's happening is God actually gives Nebuchadnezzar a prophetic vision of Christ. I want us to re think about that for a moment. He gives a prophetic vision of the Savior, of God's people, given through the oracles of, um, through the, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, but he gives this vision to a pagan king. Well, he's working a greater purpose here. Because we see later in the story of Daniel that Nebuchadnezzar, he tries to thwart God. He tries to thwart the one true God, and it doesn't work. And in fact, it doesn't work so much so that Nebuchadnezzar actually becomes one who worships God. A complete turnaround, a turnaround that Paul experienced, and a turnaround that we should pray for all of our legislators and all of our rulers who reign over us at the moment. Though they may succeed in the moment, though they may have one battle won in ungodliness, there is a longer war taking place, and it is a war that Christ has already won. And so by our godly life, we serve as an example and a testimony to these people of who our God is. And that's what Daniel was doing. This is a bit speculatory, but Daniel was caught praying, praying very often. And I can only imagine that Daniel was not only praying for his people, but praying for redemption in the kingdom. And I get this because Joseph, Jacob, all of these people in the uh, Old Testament who were wronged, David, what did they do? They never went above, they never rebelled against the authority that was placed over them in that moment. The only time they did so was when they were commanded to violate the commands of God. And so too with us. And so in Daniel chapter 4, what we, what we see uh, I'm going to read, it's a little longer passage, uh, Daniel chapter 4, verses 34 and 35. Nebuchadnezzar eventually, after being humbled, eating grass for seven years, and then being restored, says this. At the end of days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the most, <coughs> I blessed the most high and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All of the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand and say to him, what have you done? Paul understands when speaking to Timothy in this matter that God can turn an evil king to worship him. And so he's commanding Timothy to lead a godly and dignified life. But what does it mean by quiet? What does it mean by quiet? He commands him to live a quiet life. Does that mean he never speaks? Well, no. Right? When we think of a quiet life, we think of someone who doesn't bring about unnecessary contention oftentimes, who doesn't, you know, want to stir up controversy all the time, who wants to maintain peace, and when division comes to him based off of what they say, will receive it and stand for the truth. I would argue Christ lived a quiet and dignified life, yet he was persecuted all the time. He didn't go in and you know, cause unnecessary ruckus, stirring up riots, etc., but he did go in preaching the truth. He did go go in preaching the kingdom of God. And so what I would contend, what living a quiet life means is, you know, are we gracious in our speech towards others? Do we stir up unnecessary contention? Are we quick to anger or are we quick to hear and slow to speak? By doing these things, we embody the character of God and we show a darkened world who God is. Do we give others the benefit of the doubt, even people who we know are doing wrong? Do we, are we quick to take sides in a dispute, especially among brothers and sisters of Christ? Or do we value unity in Christ? Are we unwilling to forgive? 
And I would say this is a very, uh, you know, it can, it can hit home for me. I remember um, back in my early 20s, there was a time when there was a lot of bitterness in my life. I was very frustrated with the world. I was very frustrated with, uh, you know, my parents, unrightfully so. I was very frustrated. I sp spoke on it last week about the experience I had in Washington. Um, I was very frustrated because I was in grad school at the time, and it was very tough, and I didn't think it should be so onerous. Uh, and in fact, I would argue if I wasn't Christian, I may be like uh, some of the Frenchmen of old who cry out, let the streets run with blood in revolution. There was much about this world that I hated and wanted to overthrow, and I had to repent of that. But that was all born out of an unwillingness to forgive some things that were wrong, done wrong to me. And living a quiet life dig, uh, showcases the character of God. And I'd say one of the prime characteristics is love and a willingness to forgive one another. Because that root of bitterness can take hold and it can cause all types of contention where we don't realize it. We become on edge. We are quick to anger. We aren't quick to hear. We are quick to speak. We are quick to judge. That is the nature of sin. That is the nature of bitterness. And that's why Paul tells people to root out the root of bitter, or to get rid of the root of bitterness in one's heart, because it can be so dangerous. Are we arrogant and pompous in our speech? Or are we humble in our speech? All these things qualify or talk about what it means to live a quiet life. But none of us would really take that to say, oh, we should never speak. And I bring this up because this will become important in a later part of the passage, specifically when it talks about women learning in all submissiveness and quietly in the church. And lastly, do we pervert justice for selfish gain or not? Right, not living a quiet life, right, trying to change the scenario maybe at work, something someone else has done, not giving due credit where it's due, can stir up controversy in a lot of different environments. We don't want that. And this is qualified by the phrase dignified in every way. Is our work done well? Is our work, our day-to-day -day work done with a heart and desire to please God? Do we want to listen to the commands of Christ when we do it, or do we want selfish gain? Right, at the core of this is, do we repay evil for evil? Or do we repay ev uh, evil with good? Many in the Old Testament understood this very fact. Jacob, after being a trickster with his brother, uh, then was tricked by Laban for 20 years, came to a realization that it was wrong and he was not to repay evil for evil. He was not to get back at Laban. Joseph knew this from the beginning. When he was thrown into the pit, <laughs> all the way to thrown back into jail after rising his, the ranks. Right, Joseph is a very good example of what it means to live a quiet and dignified and godly life. He was in prison and the, he worked diligently and he worked honestly and his character was honest in such an example that people gave him more responsibility. But guess what? He was thrown back into prison and he did the same. He didn't repay evil for evil. David is a very good example of this as well. David was under a king who was trying to kill him. Like Saul was trying to kill David, but David understood that Saul was appointing king over Israel at the time. David had a chance to take vengeance for his life, for Saul trying to kill him. But what did he do? He just tore off a piece of his garment. He didn't re repay evil for evil. And he says, for that is the Lord's anointed. And he submitted to the authority by not repaying evil for evil. And ultimately, Christ did this as well. We need to see that. When Christ was maligned, spoken ill of, he was silent. He even submitted himself to the governing authorities and went to the cross, knowing there was a greater purpose at hand. But he didn't respond, and he never repaid evil for evil. So that's what I argue it means to live a dignified life. When you go to work, are you honest? Are you honest about your work? Do you treat people well? Do you give people the benefit of the doubt? That one person who's super annoying, maybe they don't work very well. Do we still give them 
your, your, do you still give them your ear to listen, hoping that they may come to a knowledge of God, hoping that they may turn and repent, and thence their life would completely change? Next, we talk about uh, that it is good and pleasing. You know, he says it is good and pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved. So we see, once again, under, like the, the undercurrent of this entire passage is the desire that people would come to a knowledge of Christ, that they would be saved. For there is one man between God and man, between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ. And I kind of touched on it earlier, but this was a common, uh, about, you know, what might Hymenaeus' and Alexander's blaspheming be? And it was very common in this time period that people would go of one of two ways, which I mentioned, either denying the divinity or denying the humanity of Christ. And it's a very unique part of um, the New Testament that Paul specifically mentions the man, Christ Jesus. Christ came and did what Adam could not do. Adam was supposed to obey God fully. But he didn't. Christ, as a man, fully tempted in every single way that mankind has been tempted, yet without sin, did obey God. And so he deserves the one, the rightful place of mediator. He sacrificed himself for the sins of many. It is a good reminder and encouragement uh, that we are to keep in mind that Christ is the mediator. Uh, in the course of church history, it has been very tempting for many to institute other people as the mediator between God and man. One very common thing is the church. The church is the only mediator. We need to remember that it is Christ who is the mediator, not the church. Other people think it might be priests or other people. Like you need, to, you need to go to these people in order to gain salvation in some way. In this one statement, you can see that it's you can push away different uh, heresies that may creep into the church, keeping central that it is Christ who is the mediator between God and man. Similarly, it is Christ who is the judge of people. We are not the judge of the, we do not uh, judge the eternal soul. We don't have that insight. Christ is our advocate as well, though. And that's a very encouraging thing. It's a very encouraging thing for us to remember that it is Christ who called Paul. It is Christ who called us as well into repentance and life. Now, the last section I want to touch on, uh, well, I'll just say there's some phrases in here that uh, have caused much controversy over the past 60 years. Um, and so we're going to tackle those head on. Uh, we want to you know, try to understand what is God's word saying. Um, and in, in many ways, we can see that people have made shipwreck of their faith by not listening to the words of God in these, some of these next uh, verses, uh, not holding the faith with a good conscience. First off, Paul, Paul commands Timothy to tell men, right, so back up. This section I want to title as the particulars of a godly life uh, split into the two different genders mainly. Right, so before we had for all people, like all people are to pray. All people are to desire people to come to God in the knowledge of Christ. All people are to remind one another that Christ is the mediator that we have one mediator, the man, Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus. Now we go into particulars, right? And what are the particular sins for the different genders? Because right? remember back in the creation story, God actually curses man and woman differently. He curses the man who is not named Adam yet. So sometimes I'll refer to it as him as the man uh, when he wasn't named. And he curses the woman who then was later named Eve differently. And so they're going to be manifestations of sinful desires for different genders. Now, that's not to say that each gender can't experience uh, 
certain sins the other one. Like sin is sin at its core. And, um, but there's going to be certain temptations that are greater, I would argue, due to the curse and due to the nature of who we are created as either male or female. So to men, first and foremost, Paul tells Timothy to tell them to pray together, lifting hands in unity, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. One of the biggest temptations for men, and you can see this in the history of the world, is, hey, man, you did something I didn't like. All right, I'm going to go get some troops, and we're going to kill you, right? That's the extreme version. But you see that it is very common for men to want to quarrel. And in fact, you see this with young children. And I speak of my upbringing because I had an older brother. And one of the ways that boys a lot of times get rid of their frustration is they kind of duke it out. You know, if you have multiple brothers, you can see that they like start to wrestle and then things are kind of, you know, set at ease. Um, I was debating about using this example, and I think I'm going to. There's a movie called Warrior. I don't know if any of you have seen it, but it's about two brothers in MMA fighting. And it's about a family that actually has a very contentious, uh, like they are at war with one another. The older brother and the, the younger brother is out to get the older brother. And in the end, what ends up happening is, you know, they're fighting in this championship match or whatever, and the older brother has to break the shoulder of his younger brother for the, shoulder, for the younger brother to yield his will, basically. And at the end of that, the older brother embraces him, and they walk off together. And you can see that the nature for a lot of men is actually to quarrel, is to fight with one another. You said this about me, and I'm going to hold it against you. Or I heard this, that you may have said this about me, so I'm going to be against you now in some way, shape, or form. Right? We can see it with factions about how a church can divide. We, saw it in, in, we see it in Corinthians. Paul tells the Corinthians, look, you're not to say, I follow Apollos. I follow Paul. No, I follow Christ, as if they're one-upping each other in some sense or fashion. No, they are supposed to submit in unity to one another under Christ. That's why I put the passage in Ephesians chapter 4, 1 through 7. It talks about the unity that brothers and sisters are to experience under Christ. One faith, one baptism, one hope, right? We all have one hope, one faith together. And so men are commanded, and it's, it's so important that men gather together because it is so easy for men to separate and then not talk to each other for years. And it's so easy for them to start to divide over seemingly not as important uh, issues, one of which could be certain eschatological beliefs. Uh, another one could even be as simple as like, oh, you work for this company. I think it's evil. I'm not going to talk to you, man. Or sports. We see it with sports. There's a lot of sporting events. And guess what? A lot of people don't like another guy who's a brother in Christ because they root for a team that you don't like. I root for a team that gets, you know, a lot of people don't like because of the way people act. Uh, it is very easy then for men to be like, oh, I don't like you because you root for the Eagles, or I don't like you because you root for the Niners, or I don't like you because, like, whatever. It's, it's silly and stupid, but it is very real. It is very real that men will pick up some little thing and then hold it against each other and look at each other as if they're not a brother in Christ. No, we're to keep first things first. And the first thing is unity in Christ. And that is why it is so important for men to pray together, not quarreling, not in anger, forgiving one another, forgiving your brother. And he says, likewise, women. All right, let's stop there. Likewise, very important. He's not drawing a distinction as if women and men are different in their ability to succumb to temptation. It's not that women can succumb to sin more or men can succumb to sin more. No, each gender can uh, succumb to sin. And so likewise, each gender is supposed to respond in faith. But it's going to manifest itself differently. Women, likewise, should adorn themselves in respectable apparel. It is a very common temptation for women to want to adorn themselves outwardly to showcase outward beauty, whereas 
Paul is encouraging women to be modest. That is what is being spoken here when it's talking about respectable apparel and modesty and self-control, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire. Now, some people will say, oh, so does that mean I should never wear pearls, never wear gold, and never braid my hair? I'm going to say no, because those are specific examples of costly attire. Right? Paul is giving specific examples of what the costly attire was then. So if you were, you have a gold ring, let's say, you're married, you're a woman, you're married, and you have a gold ring. Does that mean you should take your ring off at church and thus showcase you're not married? No, not at all, right? The purpose is to not adorn yourself with costly attire, but to adorn yourself with what? What does Paul want women to adorn themselves with? Well, in professing godliness, women are to adorn themselves with good works. Well, what is that? Well, Westminster Confession of Faith uh, has a very nice definition, so I, I'm going to read it for us. Good works are the fruits and evidences of a true and lively faith, and by them believers manifest their thankfulness, strengthen their assurance, edify their brethren, adorn the profession of the gospel, stop the mouths of the adversaries, and glorify God. Right, the good works you can think of are joy, patience, pace, patience kindness. Think of fruit of the spirits. Think of all things that you can do as a woman. You can do them with joy, patience, peace, and kindness. Charitable deeds, service towards others, service towards God, praying for people, praying for people without them knowing. There are many things that you can do, and it must be done with modesty and the focus of godliness. And then it says, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Now, I mentioned it earlier. Uh, does this mean a woman should never, ever speak when learning? No, it doesn't. Just like earlier when it says people should live a quiet and godly life, it doesn't mean that you don't talk ever. But it's more about the attitude of what you're doing. Are you learning with a desire to know more about God, or are you learning with a desire to usurp some authority, to challenge unnecessarily, causing contention and division? And that's where it comes back to Paul saying, I do not teach a woman to, or permit a woman to teach, I do not teach women, sorry. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, rather she to remain quiet. In this sense, the word quiet, when being taught, would mean not teaching others, especially men. Now, why, why say this? Where is Paul getting this? Well, he goes back to creation. And I want to quickly, I know, uh, coming to the end here, but I want to quickly expound the creation narrative and show you that Adam and Eve were given very specific roles. And in that, we are to fulfill them in the church as well. There's a natural order to creation that it is easy for us to want to buck against. Adam was created. Then Adam was given a command by God. And God says, you're not allowed to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. After Adam was given the command, Eve was created. I want, the, I want us to hear that. Adam was to be the prophet of God to the rest of creation. The woman wasn't even made when Adam was given that command. And so when the woman was made, or when Eve was made, Adam was supposed to communicate the commands of God to her. From the beginning, the man was instituted with the authority to communicate the teachings and the oracles of God to the rest of creation. But what happened? Adam didn't do his job well, and then Eve was deceived. Right? The serpent came to Eve and said, did God really say? Now, Eve never physically heard God say the command. She never did. She heard it through Adam. So she had to take it on faith. And so the natural temptation to a woman then is to push against, did God really say? And so in submitting to the authority that is naturally given to men by God as being the prophets of God, as teaching the rest of creation, 
there was a curse placed upon woman after the fall. And that curse was, your desire shall be for your husband, but he shall rule over you. Now, I bring this up because the exact same phrase is used in Genesis 4-7 when it's talking about Cain and Abel. Or Cain, not Cain and Abel. Well, story of Cain and Abel, but Cain specifically. And God is talking to Cain, and he says, its desire is to rule over you, but you must rule over it. Well, what is the it there? Sin. Sin desired to rule over Cain. Right? So there's a curse placed upon woman specific, specifically and a curse placed upon man specifically. And so it's going to be more tempting for a woman to try to usurp the natural authority, to kind of switch the gender roles, as we would say. And we see that manifesting itself in our culture right now. Right? When, you, when you try to switch the gender roles, you go into all sorts of crazy uh, gender ideologies that get super confusing. That's why now, you know, they're talking about there is no gender, basically, because we've gotten rid of the distinctives that God has uh, created for us, which are good, and we need to remember that. God created man and then woman from man, both created in the image of God. One could think of transitive property there. I teach math, so it's in my brain, right? A equals B, B equals C, so A equals C. Well, same thing with images, right? Got man in the image of God, woman in the image of man. Therefore, woman's also in the image of God. And we think the same thing with children. Children are made in our own image, right? But they're also in the image of God. So it's not just Adam alone who was made in the image of God. All people are made in the image of God. And so all men and women are dignified in that sense. But there are specific roles we are to take according to God's command. And it's, sometimes it can be hard because, you know, I thought about going into like different reasons, different characteristics of like men and women, et cetera. But really when it comes down to it, that's how God created the world. From the beginning, that's how God made it. And so the question is, do we want to submit to the Lord's authority or do we want to try to buck against it? Submissiveness is not a personality trait. It is a character trait. And I say this because I've often heard, you know, I'm not, I'm not like my, my personality is not submissive. Well, my personality is not submissive, and yet I'm called to submit to the governing authorities. I can tell you, you can ask my father, my personality is definitely not submissive. Uh, I see some of my friends laughing, they can see that as well, right? And you can ask my wife too. The natural temptation for me is definitely to start a revolution in some way, to buck against the authority. But I've had to learn submissiveness to the authorities that are placed in my life. Some teachers I had, I had to submit to them. I didn't like it. But it was a good exercise in godliness because by living a godly and dignified life, I give witness to who my God is. So lastly, with the last two minutes, I want to touch on the phrase, uh, which you could expound a lot and talk about a lot, is yet she, referring to women in general, uh, not a specific woman, will be saved through childbearing. You're like, oh, that's interesting. What, is, what exactly does that mean? Does that mean, like, if I have a child, therefore I'm saved? Uh, no, that's not what it means. Whenever we receive the word saved, we need to ask ourselves, what are we being saved from? This is not meaning eternal salvation. But let's use that as a good example. Eternal salvation, when we are saved, we are being saved from the wrath of God. Right? There is wrath being stored, and we're saved from it, and we're saved to something else. So what here is the woman or women as a general category being saved from in childbearing? Deception. Uh, we see it before earlier. He talks about the woman being deceived and then transgressing more. There is a natural barrier placed on a life when you are a mother. All you mothers out there probably know that. You have to care for someone, and so you naturally have less time to do other things, and you are focused on caring for this child, training this child up in godliness, etc. But it's not just the act of childbearing that saves you. Like everything, Paul grounds it in faith, the big if. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness. 
That is the key to it. And now I want to speak also to single women as well, or women who can't bear, bear children. Does that mean in some way they can't be saved or are less godly? By no means. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 7. Right? He actually encourages, he says, I think Paul speaking, not God's command, I think it's better that people remain single. Why? So that they can focus on God and God alone. So for single women, or women who can't or don't have children, there is a family that you can partake in in training up people, acting as a sister, acting as a mother in the faith. It's the body of Christ. It's the family of God. Right? It's not just the fact of physical childbearing, etc., but we go back to the, the root issue, which is women are to adorn themselves with good works. That's what all of this is based on acting in faith, holiness, and love towards one another. And so I want to leave you with four main conclusions. Uh, it's a larger passage today, so I know the, the time is growing long. Uh, but four quick reminders for you all to summarize all of it. First, pray for all people, all people, even your enemies and the enemies of God and the enemies of God who are instituting godless laws upon our land. Let your speech and your actions be a witness and a testimony to who God is and also against what they're doing. Because I can guarantee you, people who perpetuate evil, they can't control themselves. But if we live godly and dignified lives in self-control, we give an example as to the nature of our salvation. Uh, that was actually one and two. Three, men, don't quarrel over things that are dumb. Come together. Reconcile with one another under Christ. Show unity in Christ. That will be a great example for all in the church, in your lives, and for all people. And lastly, women, fight the curse and the good fight of faith by se not seeking to usurp the authorities placed in your life. Uh, if you're married, submitting to your husband in a godly way. Now, that doesn't mean, you know, if your husband tells you to sin, you should sin. By no means. Right? Always submit to God's authority first and foremost, but God has placed certain authorities in our lives, and so we're to submit to them. Submit to them first, always to God, and then second, to the different authorities in your life, always with a godly nature in faith, adorning yourselves with good works, kind speech, and gracious living. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, thank you for your words this morning in 1 Timothy. Uh, please be with us as we go out into the world. Let us pray for all. Pray for all those who seek to um, work against you and help us to examine ourselves and to uh, listen and obey uh, your words as written in scripture. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.